And welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Will Button. What's going on, everybody? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm going to have to change how I say that in the future. Uh, it'll be fun. I have a special guest. We have a special guest this week. It's uh, Yitak Huang. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's perfect. All right. Do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know who you are, why you're world famous, all that stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I don't know if I'm world famous yet, but my name is Yitak. I'm currently a Senior software engineer at Asani. We're a distributed ledger technology uh, fintech company trying to solve inefficiencies in financial markets using blockchain technology. Previously, I worked at an IoT company. I was a full stack engineer. And then because uh, we needed someone to take care of cloud and scaling and DevOps stuff, I kind of migrated towards that. So I was there for four or five years. Gotcha. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So you mentioned before the show that your opinion on infrastructure has kind of changed as you've gone from full stack developer into DevOps. And it's it's always interesting to kind of understand that transition. So do you want to kind of give us an idea of where you started with being a full stack developer and working on this stuff and then moving over to infrastructure as a DevOps engineer? And you talked a little bit about like developer experience and having dev environment reflect production environment and and they all kind of tie together pretty in, in interesting ways so yeah you want to just walk us through a little bit of that journey and we'll ask questions as we go sure yeah so i started as a full stack engineer writing basically servers writing front end and making websites for iot applications so my job was to basically work with the product management team and get features and push out tickets and make sure that runs. So that sounds really familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like any other software engineering job. So my primary focus is, does it work for me? And then as long as it works, I wanted someone else to take care of the deployment process because I worked at a early stage startup. We didn't have a good CICD pipeline. We didn't have anything automated. So at first we started out with just running Docker images on EC2 instances, or we were using Google Cloud, so Compute Engine. And then as we started to scale, we needed to actually fulfill the SLAs with our customers. So we couldn't just say, oh, the Docker image went down or we ran out of disk space because logs are filling up. So someone needed to look into making sure everything was production ready, quote unquote. Um, and we didn't have anyone who were, was willing to do that or interested in doing that. And then I happened to be out in uh, attending Google uh, Cloud Conference 
And then they were talking a lot about Kubernetes and how great it was and how it's going to solve all the problems in the world. So I was like, all right, well, maybe it's time to dive into GKE. And because at a startup, once you become the quote-unquote master on that topic, you become the go-to guy. Yeah. So I was the only SRE slash DevOps slash cloud person until we started hiring more and then growing that team. Right. So yeah, I mean, I've been a software developer for 15 years. And yeah, a lot of that I, I really identify with, both from the standpoint of, yeah, you know, I just want to write the code and then I want it to magically run in production somewhere. But I've also been on the other end where it was because I started out actually installing servers and things like that when I was going to college. I worked in the uh, IT department for the university, right? And so I'd be in the data center, I actually started in the data center and then got hired onto that team. And so I was handling network stuff and server stuff and stuff, like, you know, all that stuff. And so as I've moved into development roles, I've also been, since I'm capable, on a lot of the operating systems and DevOps is, or op, operational stuff like that has changed a lot over the last 20 years. But it's I've wound up picking up some of this stuff right as I've gone because it's like, well, we need this done. Who do we know that can do it? And everybody kind of looks at each other with that dumb look on their face, right? Yeah. And then and then finally, I, I kind of go, I think I'm figuring it out. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, and then it's like, okay, go figure it out, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I hear you there, right? And especially with like having CICD and I and I push this stuff now on the dev teams, right? It's we need CICD. We need all the we need to have this stuff so that the parts that we don't need to think about, we don't need to think about. And then the parts that we do need to care about, we can care about. So yeah, I hear you, but I'm still of the opinion that yeah, you know, I just want it to magic its way into production and not really think too hard about it. Yeah. And I think the other challenge that we had was because we were primarily hiring only full stack engineers, none of them really wanted to dive into anything outside of their immediate domain, which I can empathize with because you're on the hook for delivering features. You're not necessarily being paid to make sure it runs in production. So I thought initially making sure that there's a good abstraction layer was really good for them. So that way they don't have to think about it and everything works great. But as we started to mature a little bit, I don't think that was necessarily the right path to go. I used to think that infra should be almost invisible and it should just work, which is great when everything's going great. But when it breaks, it really is hard to debug because you're the only one who knows how the abstraction layer works. I know some people can build great abstractions and tools on top, but as a small company, I think it's better to leverage open source tools and make sure that you can kind of teach your engineers how to find answers on their own rather than saying, here's this black box, and then you can use the tools that you're already familiar with and I'll solve everything else for you. Yep. So did your engineers participate in the on-call rotation there? Because we didn't have a standard like SRE uh, team, right. every engineer yeah. had to participate in on-call rotations. But what it ended up being like was they would acknowledge the problem and then they'll ping me or ping some other <laughs> engineer and say, hey, I don't know what's going on. Can you look at it? Right on. So by on-call, it meant acknowledge the page duty alert and call yeah. you. Yeah. Nice. I mean, it, it got better over time because we built more tools on top. So people are familiar with Prometheus and Grafana enough to go check it out. But I think the things that was hard was a lot of the lingo was something that I'm familiar with, but they weren't familiar with. So it was just like, okay, like, what does this mean that CPU is running out an X server? I have no idea what that is still. Yeah, and that's a, I think that's a great point. And this is something I've been dealing with a while now. 
and you mentioned it before we started recording the podcast here, is like how much infrastructure do the dev teams need to know? And you mentioned at your previous position, you tried to abstract that all away. And now you're in your your new role where you're thinking that's not such a great idea. And I think there's like a balance there, you know, where there are certain things that it's just going to make their own personal life easier if they know, but you don't want to go to the complete opposite end, you know, where they need to be able to understand how to how to build their own kernel or or something like that. So what's the happy medium there? Right. I think in my experience, a lot of the engineers are now comfortable with using Docker to a certain degree. So I think that's a really good place to be. So a lot of teams are using Docker Compose or using Docker to at least do some sort of testing on CI. So they're pretty comfortable with that. And they're comfortable packaging up some sort of application so that they can run tests or say, my application works not only on my local laptop, but also on Docker. So I think <laughs> that's a good starting point to have that discussion. Yeah, I agree. I've actually did. I, I run a YouTube channel called DevOps for Developers, which it's funny because that's when I first started it, that was my original intended target audience, you know, is how do you mm-hmm. teach the developers the DevOps skills that they may not want, but they would actually appreciate if they had them because of the benefits they get from them. But that's one of the things I've, I've talked about over there is using Docker Compose. And I combine Docker Compose with a make file mm-hmm. so that whenever someone new comes along, all they have to do is check out the repo and then type make with the up subcommand. And then the Docker Compose brings everything up for them. And that kind of like introduces them to the Docker environment, but it also uses the exact same Docker images that we're running out in production. So it kind of mimics that scenario as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so. interesting because we're using, so we're using Docker Compose at my job, but there's no make command, right? It's just Docker compose up or Docker compose down and anything else you have to do. I mean, you're just using the regular Docker command, which sometimes gets a little bit fun to deal with, right? It's like, okay, what's the really weird syntax for the command yeah. line to do this thing? Yeah. yeah. And that was the reason I went with make files is because it just makes that barrier to adoption a little bit lower if there's only a few make commands they have to remember. But then when they want to know what's really going on under the hood, you know, the make file is right there in the repo that they're working from so they can look it up quickly and easily. I like that because I've just been creating aliases in Z shell. Mm, right. And so I have I have like five of them that I use on a regular basis. But yeah, it'd be convenient to just have it in there. So it's like off it goes. Yeah. We we also use make files and I think the only time where doesn't quite do its job is when they need to add a new service and then they get confused with like the whole port forwarding or mapping the Docker network to their local host because they're like, oh, why can't I hit local host port 9000 or whatever? Because it used to work on my local laptop. Yeah, it works on my machine, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I hate that. But the thing is, is that the Docker Compose setup, to your point, it's not identical to preview or staging or anything, right? Mm. It gets close, right? Because they are using the same images, but it's not, yeah. Yeah, especially if you're using something like Kubernetes, you know, you can build out a replica set in Kubernetes that doesn't even closely resemble what you've got in Docker Compose. I think that's what they've done out in production for our staging and preview environments is 
I think it's all Kubernetes and they just say, hey, I want another one of them. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And then they just, they back up the database, obfuscate the data and then drop it in. Yeah. And another challenge that we had was the developers would, they were willing to go fiddle around with the Docker Compose files. But then now when we need to go push that to production, someone had to translate that to either hemp charts or some other Kubernetes manifest so that we can actually deploy it to our staging uh, UAT and prod environments. Right. So now are, are your developers running Minikube locally to overcome that? Yeah. So the big push this year for my team was to make sure that every developer is comfortable running Minikube. I thought it would be a much smoother process, but there's been a lot of challenges. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? People say it oh, isn't so. Yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is like port forwarding, like networking. Like in Docker Compose, you can just say, I want ports like 5432 or Postgres, and then just make sure that's mapped to localhost. But then we have people who use Linux computers, Macs, and Windows. And then now their networking is all different. Like Mac doesn't support the Docker. Eat zero bridge. So you can't just say, I want to do localhost. So you need to either specify when you start up Minikube, or now you have to say, Cube control port forward. And then you have to teach them you can either use the pod name or you can use the service name and like which way the ports like you want to do. Or if you just leave that running, they think it's just like hanging on the background. And I'm just saying, oh no, it's just making a tunnel. So it's working as it should be. It's not hanging up on it. What's the adoption experience been like that? Are they are they um, resistant to it? Or are they happy to do this? Well, we um, know they're not happy to do it, but... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I think it depends by team, or at least to my knowledge, at least. So if it's more of a newer project where it's like more greenfield development, I think they're more than happy to just dive in and say, this is a new tool that I'm willing to learn versus a legacy project. They already have all these automation built out with make files or Docker Compose. They're like, this is working for me. Why do I need to change this? I have deadlines and this is like on the tech debt category where you're not actually building anything. You're reducing some sort of toil that's kind of pushed to that team over there. Yeah, speaking of uh, squashing tickets. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're going to make me slow down my squashing tickets. And that's what the management side looks at a lot. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's a dysfunction when that's all they care about. But a lot of them, that's all they do, right? They're just looking for some productivity metric and tickets is easy. Mm-hmm. We can always refinance tech debt. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Interest rates are low. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble talking like that because I'm going to say something. My boss is going to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving on then. Are y'all, um, do y'all use Helm a lot for packaging your applications or do you stick with like Kubernetes manifest? Yeah, we decided to standardize on Helm because it seems like a lot of people are using Helm and it's kind of the de facto standard, like I graduated from CNCF. We did look into using Customize or some other uh, layer on top of Helm to make sure we can make the configurations more driven by code. In fact, like some of the developers even wanted to go like implement a new language like Doll and like use that. But in the end, I think Helm was the right kind of balance between abstracting too much or making it so that it's super configurable because in the end like for most developers they just want like postgres running or they just want like the platform running and then they only have to work on that application whether it's the front end or some sort of back end that they're working on so they didn't really want too much configuration yeah that sounds about right so what i'm curious about then is 
I guess, how much of what you give them sort of is done for you and how much do they actually have to know in order to run the system? So I think a model that's worked well is whenever there's a new project, we go in to kind of lay down the groundwork of like building out the CICD pipeline. Uh, we have like shared repos where they can just pull in so that they can reference some templates and then build the initial home chart for them and say, these are the examples of when you need to add a new environment variable. Here is an example of that you can go to that. Or if you need to add a new secret, locally, you can do this way. On staging, you need to use AWS Secret Manager or some sort of other tool to do that. Always having examples seem to be a little better rather than here's a ton of documentation on new tools that you probably don't care about and go figure it out yourself. That makes sense. The other question I have about this is, so like I said, we're using Docker Compose, which runs Docker. Or when I talk about the resources that it uses on my, my machine, it runs Docker. <laughs> right? Because it, it just it grinds and then it's like, okay, now I'm fine. Right? And if I gave it enough memory, then it's usually fine. But anyway, yeah. So how does it compare that way as far as slowing down my machine? Yeah, Minikube also eats up a lot of memory and it's very slow. So I think there are two solutions that we're thinking about. One is to run Minikube on like EC2 so that developers can SSH and have like a remote development experience. Because we do run a lot of staple sets, those tend to eat up a lot of memory. Even if we're just running like three nodes and we want to just say, oh, I want a bare bones blockchain network to do some testing. So if you have a not so high spec computer, like Minikube just dies on you because it's using Docker as a virtualization on the background. The other thing that we thought about is having a shared cluster. That's so like EKS cluster or GK cluster, and then giving every developer some sort of namespace. That I thought would work out a little better, but it's with mixed success. Uh, it seems like some people don't like to mess with like remote development per se, because now when you have to build Docker images, you have to push to your private registry and then pull from that and they don't want to deal with that. They just want like a published local type experience and have that available to you immediately. That makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. I can see the motivation behind that. And I think it's something that in the DevOps world, we deal with a lot like oh i want to make a change to the pipeline okay i'll make the change to the code open up a pull request pull request gets merged in that triggers the uh, pipeline build pipeline builds fails three to four minutes later go back to my code try to figure out what it did wrong you know and and that's just the iteration cycle for us which i would like to avoid whenever possible so if, i think if we, if we were trying to push someone to a scenario that looked like that i can see where they would be hesitant Right. Especially when your test run for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's not right. When your tests run more than like I mean, the the tests that I run, and this is just kind of unit test level, it takes a minute or two and it it takes too long in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. There are some applications that we write in Scala and then just compiling it takes a while on the pipeline and then running end-to-end -end tests. It's mm -hmm. bringing up the entire network and doing some like simple, like, did it write to Postgres? Like, that takes a long time. Well, that's the other issue too, is so most of the development I do is in Ruby. And just due to the nature of Ruby, I mean, you can, depending on how you set things up, but in Rails in particular, a lot of that stuff you can update on the fly, right? And it'll show up in your app. And so if there's any kind of build step, it it adds a level of pain because you're just 
you're pretty used to changed brand. Mm-hmm. If you're doing front-end JavaScript stuff, kind of, same kind of thing. And there, there are different mechanisms for that too. You know, you run into that with like a Webpack build or something. And if your build takes too long, it you feel that pain too. So yeah, yeah. I mean, as a full stack developer before, like all I wanted was like a hot module reloading type experience where. Like I change something and it like magically yep. refreshes and everything's good to go. Yeah, I can see right away whether or not it works. And then I can move on to the next thing. And then if it has to go do a build, even if it's a Docker image build, I mean, I, I don't I don't have to think about it. Yeah. Don't want to yeah. know about it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Lazy coder right here. <laughs> yeah, I, I do know there there's some tools out there like Scaffold that kind of is aiming to fix that problem. So like they're kind of trying to automate the whole like Docker build, Docker push, uh, Docker test kind of workflows. But I thought it was too much to enforce onto our team and say, okay, now we move to Minikube and I have to learn Helm and we have to learn Scaffold. So hoping to introduce that sometime later this year, once everyone's more comfortable with Minikube and Helm. Yeah, it's probably a good call. Yep. So you mentioned that they're building their own Helm charts based on the examples that you provide, does that include like setting container resources and limits and or the, the requests and the limits and, and all the way in the like the health checks all the way down to that level? So yes and no, because like our applications are somewhat similar in nature. Like I can say, okay, if you're running a validator node for our blockchain, then I can tell you that you probably at least need a gig of memory for your requests. So I can give you like some sort of like sane default values. And for health checks, I, we've been trying to get more involved with the design aspect of things so that those don't get pushed to the very end. And then when it runs and it breaks and we have no metrics or no logs, then we can't help them. So <laughs> we're like, let's just build that out straight from the beginning. So mm-hmm. we have like a health check endpoint, a metrics endpoint, use Prometheus. And here's how you can also use that to debug your code. Right on. But again, that's better for newer projects. They're willing to take that step. But for existing projects, they're like, we'll try to get to it as, as soon as I finish my tickets. It's on our backlog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the backlog is yeah. such a lie. <laughs> that's It's all the stuff we're going to... And I'm making major air quotes here. Going to get to someday. <laughs> Next quarter. It's a giant wish list. And if you think about it as anything else... In fact, if you think of it as a wish list... You're still deluding yourself, but it's less delusional than stuff you're eventually going to get to. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then 
We'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have this situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. I think that's a good approach, though. And it's one of the things I've thought about, like, what's the right level of abstraction for DevOps for software engineering? And I think the more I focus on this problem, I think that's kind of the direction I keep going is, um, like you mentioned, having getting involved earlier in the process, because you'll never hit a scenario, you know, where you have experts on who are just experts across all fronts. So I think a better goal is to have people with different skill sets in different areas of expertise on each team so that whenever those meetings happen, you just accidentally have the right resources in place. You know, like each team should have someone who's a strong back-end engineer, someone who has the UI front-end design type skills, someone who's got more of a sysadmin slash DevOps style background. And then as you tackle the project, you know, and you talk about how to build those things out, each person has their own area of expertise that they can interject earlier into that process and uh, and try to head off some of these production day problems that we're familiar with. Wait, 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 wait. So these DevOps problems are people problems? <laughs> <laughs> well, and so we have to talk to each other? No, no, no. If, if you, whatever chat application you use, whether it's Teams or Slack or whatever, there's a GIF that will summarize everything you need to say. You should see the way I use Teams. I think you pretty well summed it up. <laughs> I am the GIF monster on our Teams chat. And I, anyway, well, I and part of it's because I hate Teams. And so it's me making fun of the fact that I have to use it in the first place. It's like, at least I'm going to have fun with it. I think. I but just yeah. And you, Jared, to get asking for help. Oh, man. I think I'm going to start ticking here when you. Nervous tick is kicking. Jira. Yeah. But it's funny that, that you say that because it, it seems like in a lot of cases, that's kind of how we can wind up communicating with each other. And yeah. then it there's a ton of context that's missed out on with all this stuff. Yeah. And in a seriously legitimate business case, I think GIFs actually do add a lot to communication because it can represent a lot of the body language and tone of voice that you don't get through text. Mm. That's going to be my master's thesis is how gifts are actually a, an evolved form of communication. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need that thesis <laughs> justify my existence on my team. But, but yeah, you know, so I like what I was trying to say, Will, was that I like the point you made where when you, when you bring everybody together and you talk through these things, you're actually having all the expertise brought to bear. But the other thing is, is you're actually talking about this stuff, right? Yeah. Instead of just assuming that oh, DevOps is going to take care of this and our back-end expert's going to handle this and our front-end expert's going to handle this. And then it turns out that nobody has any idea what anybody else is doing. And if, if anybody tells me that they've never experienced this, they're lying their face off or they've been a developer for about two weeks. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
That's true. And, and I've learned that I think those conversations have always been happening. They just didn't have the right people. And yeah, one of the things I did at the last couple of places I worked was just started going into random meetings, see people and like, hey, I know what team that guy's on and just walk into the room and join their meeting. And sure enough, you know, they would be having a conversation, wandering down their happy little path, fixing to paint themselves into a corner because they didn't they didn't know what they didn't know. Yeah. Well, the other part of that is, is that you'll have the meeting where you don't have the right, you know, you're missing one of the right people in the room. And then you wind up deciding, oh, well, we'll, we'll wait and we'll check in with so-and-so, right? <laughs> well, the problem is, is when you check in with some so-and-so, you give them the half hour conversation about two minutes and you leave out all the important stuff. <laughs> right. And so, so you really do have to pay attention to this stuff. Otherwise, you're going to wind up shooting yourself in the foot. I feel like that happens a lot with the security teams because they're not involved early <laughs> enough. And then they're like, oh yeah, we need to push this out. Can you make sure it isn't secure? And then they're like, nope, this won't work for you. Well, that and people get tired of getting told no. Yeah. But that's what they're there for. And yeah, anyway, I think I've made my point. So you're you're running Minikube. Did you settle on running Minikube on the dev machines then? Is that where you wound up? Or Yeah, currently we're running Minikube on dev machines. And then for special cases where they need to like run performance testing or some large jobs, then they can reserve EC2 machines and run some Kubernetes jobs there. So what, what does that setup look like then? You know, I mean, let's say that I'm the new guy on your team. What am I going to have to go through in order to get the app running? So for most of our applications, it's similar to what Will described. Like the readme will describe, like in order for you to run everything, run this make file. So like make setup will download Minikube for you and then start it up and then create all the secrets to pull from our private registry, tell you about some like commands that you can use and then like make start will like deploy that application and then make test will run some sort of integration test there. Okay. That sounds pretty straightforward. Most important question though, are you using CalSay to send information back through the terminal to the to the new user? <laughs> I have not incorporated that yet, but I guess that's why our product's not complete. You can you can put it on the backlog. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You'll get to it someday. Yeah. Just make sure you run it through CI C D. Oh man. So yeah, so they, they go, they make sure that they have Minikube and everything else set up on their machine and that they're able to access basically your Docker repo. And then, yeah, the rest of it's just make setup. So you made this transition from full stack over to DevOps SRE. Do you want to go back to full stack? Um, <laughs> I think... Is that a loaded question? Yeah, I think that's a loaded question. Um <laughs> I think I would go back to full stack if it was actually full stack. Um, I think a lot of companies, when they post for full stack positions, it means like you're going to be doing front end 90% of the time. And then you'll be making some like API endpoints to say, uh, like, I don't know, get the new product or whatever. I think I'm happy with my current role because it really is DevOps. There is some dev component to it. It's not just like 100% ops and calling the engineers DevOps engineer or SRE. I do miss having that immediate satisfaction, though, with full stack. Like whenever I make a change, I can see something immediate happening rather than I made an upgrade to my VPC fabric or CNI plugin. And now you have 10x the pod density on the EC2 machines. No one's going to care until like someone gets the build. 
like a month later. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. You find that there are certain aspects of your job that are either easier or make it easier to relate to the developers that other DevOps folks that you work with don't have or yeah. kind of mess up sometimes. Yeah, I think coming from a full stack background, I think it's easier to empathize and know like which parts that they do want an abstracted away or which parts that they will trip up. So like dealing with environment variables or like making sure that like when you pass in an int and then environments like tend to treat that as a string. So like it breaks your application, like some, something silly like that, or like making sure like you have enough logging and then pointing them to the right direction. Rather than I think if you started out as a cloud engineer, like you're just so focused on the system design and not so much on the like how the individual application works. So it's hard to like help a developer go find where the root cause is. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, like how I want to think about like the infrastructure team is like I want to treat infrastructure also as a product so that like we have some sort of contract between the development teams so that they can have some sort of interface, like some API type like experience so that if they want to run this, like they can always expect like X, Y, and Z. And we're not going to always have breaking changes so that they have to learn new tools all the time. But CICD will have some sort of behaviors that they can always look forward to so that if they want to try new things, it's not always having to set up a meeting, talk to someone, you forget that that person's not there. So set up another meeting and throw it on the backlog. <laughs> I guess the other thing that I'm wondering is, so you, you're running Minikube, you have the setup script and all that stuff. How close then is the developer setup to production? That's a good question. I think developer setup is pretty close to production, except it's a lot pared down. And obviously, we can't have all the data inside our, of our databases. So we do run some like mock data. So mm-hmm. besides that, I think it's pretty close to production. Like the only difference would be like we're running like a one node Kafka locally versus like 10 brokers or however many brokers on production. But hopefully the behavior should be the same. It's just the scalability aspect. Right. And uh, the other part is like TLS. Uh, like when you're developing, like you don't want to create all these certs. And mm-hmm. hopefully we think like TLS is abstracted away problem that we can fix it on the pipeline or on staging. So like we don't really enforce that at development. That seems reasonable. Yep. I'm also curious to know what things you're working on adding to your setup at this point. I think the biggest thing that I'm working on right now is actually not so much on the setup and the tooling, but more on the educational side. Like how can I make sure that a new developer who's not familiar with Kubernetes can look at the make files or look at whatever and go and figure out like what's going on. So like part of that is like writing more about it on the blogs or I hold office hours like once every two weeks to like just answer questions. Obviously, that's not a scalable solution, but like maybe this is something that you guys can kind of provide advice for programmatically growing that educational content. Yeah. Yeah. I think have them all subscribe to the podcast. They should get the education resources they need on a weekly basis. I agree. Everybody (laughs) should subscribe to this podcast. It will solve all of your problems except the ones that we don't solve. Yeah. All right. Oh, I'm so tired that that was actually almost funny. And sit back and relax at work now. Just tell everyone to listen to the podcast. Right. <laughs> That's right. I did my job. I'll be I'll be back next week. Yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to think because I had a couple more questions, but I'm kind of blanking on what they were. 
Are there any things that you're working on learning that you don't know that you think might actually help with this? I've been trying out like new tools under like what they call like app ops. So like Scaffold is one of the examples. There are some other hosted solutions like Shippa that kind of have built like a developer platform around Kubernetes. So like they kind of take care of like the whole RBAC problem for you, user authentication, making sure that namespaces are secure so that developer A can't have access to developer B's namespace. I'm trying to see if that's a good enough abstraction or is that another thing that works great day one, but then now when you go to day two and things break, is that going to be more of a problem for me? And then the other thing that I'm looking into is because configuring all these TLS certs have been a hassle, uh, we do want to use a service mesh, but running a blockchain, a lot of things are not HTTP calls. It's a lot of like low-level TCP calls. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if like Istio or anything else will give me anything useful other than like some observability and added like weight of like routing, I guess. Right. So you mentioned that some of your customers have on-premise equipment and some of your stuff is in AWS. Are those isolated for, from each other or... Is that all part of one extended blockchain network? Yeah, so they're connected via some VPN solution. Um, okay. So like they're all connected. Um, but so it's like a hub and spoke model. So yeah. like one customer will be connected to our centralized blockchain, but they might not have communication to each other directly. Gotcha. Yeah. So that adds a whole another layer of um, of networking whenever you onboard new customers, right? Is that something that your team handles, onboarding the new customers? Yeah. It's thankfully not what I do day-to-day. There's another guy (laughs) who works on the networking part, which I'm very, very thankful for. But yeah, I think that does kind of bring up another interesting challenge because before when people were working on EC2 machines, they can just put a static IP and then just say, okay, I want to talk to this IP address. And some of the VPN solutions can't, talk to like an NLBN point or anything like that. So they they can't you can't just put a DNS name and say something the pod inside this cluster can move around, but we can always get there. Um, so we need to come up with like some clever solutions around like putting elastic IPs on NLBs or like using global accelerator to make sure just to make sure that traffic comes in, even though it doesn't buy us anything in terms of like load balancing or anything like that. Yeah, one of the places I worked years ago, this was pre-AWS, we had a very similar network model. We had VPN connections to, I think it was like 5,000 hospitals across the U.S. To each of our data centers, we had a U.S. data center, a Swiss data center, and an Australian data center. And all of those, so each hospital had VPN connections to each of those. And we had the the grumpiest network guys in the world. But rightfully so, because every hospital had to have its own unique IP address space for the VPN connections or it wasn't going to work. And so, yeah, that was that was interesting. Right. Yeah. I think that's the one thing I do miss about being a full stack engineer. I didn't have to think about like regulatory <laughs> concerns or <laughs> configuration <laughs> or cert <laughs> management or anything like that. We deal plenty with regulatory concerns. It just depends on what you're banging on. Right. Well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and do picks. And unless there's something else that we need to cover. I don't think that's pretty good for me. 
All right. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Will, do you want to toss us out some picks? Oh, I do. I do. This one it, um, actually happens to be related to the conversation I've been using this tool for a couple months now called K9S. It's a Kubernetes CLI tool. And so if you spend any time with Kubernetes at all, you just get really, really tired of typing out these long, nasty commands. <laughs> and a lot of my experience with that is the, the whole purpose of the command was just to view or read some config data or state data in Kubernetes, I didn't actually want to change anything. I just want to see what the current value was. And so K9S is really cool. It's a CLI tool where you can just use keyboard shortcuts to navigate through the cluster. And then one of my favorite features of it is that it has a read-only flag on it as well. So that you can launch it with the read-only flag, and then you can't even make changes to Kubernetes, which kind of pushes you back down the correct path of if you're going to change something in Kubernetes, then make a change to the code repo that's driving that configuration, send it through the appropriate CI CD flow for that. So that's pick number one. And then pick number two from the category of hashtag shameless self-promotion. I launched a YouTube video the other day on salary negotiation that's doing really well because it turns out a lot of people in tech didn't know or didn't negotiate their salary at their current job. So I just put together this video of some of the things I learned about salary negotiation over a couple of decades of doing this. Some of those things I learned the hard way. And so I will uh, drop a link for that as well so that you can get the most money for your working hours. Nice. Very cool. I'm going to throw out a couple of picks here. First of all, I, I've been sitting here thinking this whole time that I have failed on Will a whole bunch of times and I feel bad about it. So I'm just going to pick Will as our hero carrying the show when I had other stuff going on. The last couple of weeks have been really rough. I had a, a brother wind up in the hospital. I had I went camping with my son. That wasn't so rough. <laughs> That's uh, but, good to hear. <laughs> but I was, I was gone. Right. And uh, anyway, so I'm going to... Will, Will, you're my hero. A few other picks. One of the picks that I have, and uh, this is something that my wife and I have kind of picked up lately. So we in the evenings, we just relax and we'll find something to watch on whatever. And typically what we wind up doing is we have kind of our go-to shows. Well, none of those go-to shows are actually running right now. And so we had kind of exhausted our, hey, this is something we watch together pile of, of, of shows. And so we kind of were looking around and then we remembered that we wanted to watch The Chosen. And The Chosen is a video series. It's free. So if you want to go watch it, you can. It's a video series about the life or the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the difference between it and a lot of the other sort of biblically based shows 
is that those shows tend to depict more or less exactly what you see in the Bible. Like they don't, they don't elaborate on any of it. And what this show has done is it gives backstories to some of the apostles. It gives backstories to some of the other people in the Bible, gives a bit of personality to Jesus and to some of these other people. And so you, we've really been enjoying it because it really does kind of align with the way that we would envision some of these folks. And you know, some of the other folks is like, I never even, I never even thought about what, how they existed before they met Jesus. Right. Right. But it's been, it's been a terrific series. It, it really has just a solid feeling about it. And anyway, I, we've been really enjoying it. And uh, as I was kind of looking into it, cause I picked it on another show and I was like, it's like, so what, what else is there about this? It turns out that they filmed it in Goshen, Utah, which is not terribly far from where I live. So that's just another weird and random, but kind of fun personal connection that I, you know, I figured out that we had, but yeah, I've really been enjoying it. So I'm going to pick the chosen. That was a long winded pick. (laughs) Just on the self-promotion train, a few things that I'm going to throw out there. First of all, we are rebranding devchat.tv. The reason is, is because I really want to focus on helping people become the top end devs or the top end DevOps folks in this case in their area, in their career, so that they can take control of their career and make out of it what they want, right? So for some people, make out of it what they want is, I'm going to work for a company, I'm going to make as many dollars as I can. And for other people, they want to contribute to the community in certain ways. So they want to build courses or coach people or mentor people or put content out or whatever, right? And so we're really going to be focusing on that kind of a thing. We're not going to move our take our eye off of the technology ball Right. So we'll still talk about Kubernetes and, you know, whatever. But what that means is that you're probably going to see a bit of content pop up around the kind of stuff that Will was talking about with like salary negotiation or going freelance or starting a podcast or things like that. And speaking of starting a podcast, is the other self promotion. If you go to podcastbootcamp.io, I'm putting together a four week launcher podcast bootcamp. Oh, nice. So if, you, if you're thinking, hey, I, I want to start a podcast, I, I mean, we, I've launched probably 25 or 30 podcasts. We've produced over 3,000 podcast episodes. I mean, on and on and on and on. And so, and what I'm finding is, is that a lot of people, what they want is they want me to help them get their show launched and they kind of want to run it for a while. And then they'll come back and say, okay, I'm running out of content ideas or I'm trying to figure out how to grow it. But that first step I, in four weeks, you can have your podcast up and running, sounding terrific be getting in front of the people that you want to get in front of, be that maybe potential future bosses, uh, future collaborators on projects, freelance customers, whatever. But we can help you figure out who you're trying to reach, figure out what your show needs to look like, and then help you get it pulled together and launched. So that's what we're doing. Four weeks. Right on. Podcastbootcamp.io. All right. Uh, tech. what are your picks? Well, first of all, I was told that if everyone subscribes to this podcast, all my problems will be solved. So that's one of my picks. <laughs> and on the... Sh- how, how do we say that? Results not guaranteed? <laughs> and Need the, the fast-talking attorney disclaimer right about now. <laughs> right. And on the shameless... They uh, cause heartburn. Oh, not that kind of attorney. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, on the self-promotion train... I do write about a lot of these topics on my Medium blog. So it's just etech at medium.com. So if you guys can check that out or you can suggest any topics that you want me to write about. And on the TV show front, I just finished season three of Manifest. So hopefully someone will pick that up 
Apparently, it's supposed to be up to season six, and no one has picked it up yet. So hopefully, Netflix or someone else will continue that show. Nice. It's kind of fun when that happens. I remember when it happened to The Expanse. I think uh, Amazon purchased it from Sci-Fi. Right. And it's nice. If it's a great show, it's nice when somebody picks it up and you know kind of runs with it. So good deal. Uh, people want to connect with you online. You mentioned Medium, but I'm also assuming you're maybe on Twitter or GitHub or LinkedIn or something. Right. Yeah. Twitter, GitHub, LinkedIn. My name's pretty unique. So if you just search Y-I-T-A-E-K, it's most likely going to be me. So that's how you can find me. <laughs> awesome. And if you can put links in the chat, we'll make sure they end up in the show notes so people can find you that way too. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks for coming. This was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up here. Until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.